Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, where today you might notice that uh, the Apostle Paul, while speaking to ethnic Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost, he inserts a pause. It's a subtle interruption in Joel's prophecy. The first half, verses 17 and 18, portrays the pouring out of God's Spirit at Pentecost. But the second part of Joel's prophecy, verses 19 and 20, predicts a future judgment and a pouring out of God's wrath on the day of the Lord. And directly in the middle of Joel's prophecy, uh, indicated by uh, Joel's prophecy, indicated by the bold uppercase letters in many of your Bibles. Uh, you will notice that in between there is inserted a, a few words in lowercase. And this is where Peter inserts his own summary of the events at Pentecost, words not included in the original prophecy by Joel. Uh, thus, at the end of verse 18, Peter himself restates for a second time, and they shall prophesy. So Peter inserts what seems to be an interruption between the promises of Joel, uh, between the promise of God pouring out his spirit and of God pouring out judgment, uh, an, an interruption between blessing and judgment, which itself would only appear natural. Why announce a divine blessing if there would exist no period before the judgment. It's like I announce the blessing at Pentecost and the next day judgment. No, it would be natural to expect an interruption between the two. Jesus did something similar when preaching to his hometown in Nazareth. Uh, we find it in Luke chapter 4. In the synagogue, Jesus picks up and reads from the scroll of Isaiah, declaring, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, remember that, release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." And rather than continuing reading the very next words in the scroll of Isaiah, which say, and the vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God, uh, Jesus rather instead closes the book of Isaiah and sat down. So Jesus surely indicates there would be a, a pause between the year of God's favor and the day of the Lord's judgment, which again is only rational. 
I believe Peter does the same here. He announces this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, which will be followed by a period of grace, God's grace, before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath. And folks, we, we are living in that pause. We are living in that interruption. Uh, therefore, as I read beginning in verse 19, Uh, These signs of terror in the sun, moon, and stars uh, are far too similar to Jesus' description of his own return at the end of this age to accept as being fulfilled in any way in 30 A.D. or at Pentecost. Uh, And thus far we have experienced about a 2,000-year period of grace between the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, verses 17 and 18, and the day of God's judgment that will fall upon man. On that day, verse 19 reads, And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That marks the end of Joel's prophecy. In verse 22, then, Peter begins preaching. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him, In your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Uh, Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay." David says, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verses 19 and 20, they frame, they, they box Peter's sermon with a warning, and that is that the day of wrath is coming. The good news, says Peter, is, well, that day is not today. I, however, do not have that authority, that apostolic authority to tell you as Peter did. I can't say that today is not that day. This day, it's November 20th, 2022, it isn't over yet. It's early in the day. Nothing is preventing these eschatological signs, these end times signs from occurring in the sky above. 
nor hindering the Lord Jesus from returning today. And once the signs begin, these signs that are listed, once they begin, it's going to be too late, folks. It's going to be too late uh, for those who have not repented. We heard from the Apostle Paul speaking in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 uh, when he said, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So precisely as Jesus warns in Luke chapter 17, that just as experienced in the days of Noah, uh, and just like when judgment rained down upon the city of Sodom, once these signs of judgment begin to appear, uh, there will remain no escape hatch on the day of the Lord. You must accept Christ as Savior today. And in that case, verse 20, it shall be that all who call on the name of the Lord, uh, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it must be now and not when the signs occur. It must be now that you embrace Jesus as Savior of the Lord and all the earth. Um, that is exactly the point that Peter makes in this first sermon. It's his first sermon at Pentecost. It's going to continue through verse 40, we will see. Um, here Peter preaches the quintessential bad news, good news sermon. It should, should serve as a model for all preaching today. In verses 22 and 23, after reading the scripture, Peter explains, you, you've all been very, very bad. You've been bad. And in verses 24 to 28, he's going to say, but God has always been very, very good by offering a period of grace. But when presenting the gospel, we must, without fail, point out the sinful and corrupt nature of every single man, woman, and child, or else you haven't really presented the gospel. Therefore, Romans 3, verse 10, describes our condition of humanity today. The Apostle Paul writes, There is none righteous, there is not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become useless. There is none who does good, writes Paul. There is not even one. Folks, Paul's words don't suddenly become more flattering as he continues in verse 13. In fact, as I was preparing to come up, I'm like, you know what, I, I really should just read continuing in verse 13. As Paul continues to write, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of 
poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of judgment. Sounds a lot like Sodom back in the day. Sounds a lot like today. And then we find this summary of the Apostle Paul that he supplies as God's indictment against humanity. It's just a little later in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. He says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What percentage of mankind are born dead in their sins? All. How many are, you know, naturally righteous and out of their own human volition uh, seek after God and righteousness? None. Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3 describe a, a human race that, that is totally depraved. Nobody out there is out of their own free will seeking after God. Uh, no, rather God is the one who is out doing the seeking. So, so Peter brings the nation of Israel their really bad news first. And the bad news begins, of all places in verse 22, with Jesus' miracles. You ever consider that as bad news? Peter begins, you know, men of Israel, listen closely. As you yourselves well know, this Jesus the Nazarene, not to get him confused with anybody else, he did a lot of miracles. Where might we start? Well, turned water into wine. Uh, there was the feeding of the 5,000 and, and then the 4,000. Or was it the 4,000 and then the 5,000? I always get mixed up on those two. He fed thousands. How about raising the dead? Raising Lazarus from the dead, a miracle so profound in its significance and performed, performed so publicly that the Pharisees plotted to kill Lazarus all over again because of the divine implications of Christ raising him from the dead. How about healing massive crowds, every person in the crowd, of their diseases and their sicknesses? Huge crowds all being healed. Just imagine if we were part of those crowds and Jesus had come. I mean, just how many of us would raise our hand and say, Boy, I got a physical problem? Everybody has something, unless you're 16, everybody has a physical ailment. Your feet, 
or your lungs or, or pains. Just think, these crowds, in some locations it said that every person was healed. That, that'd be 80% of us at least here. Evidence everywhere, and the outcome of these public miracles was the whole nation believed in Jesus, right? No. No, Israel did not believe, even when Jesus himself, God's son, did the miracles. Folks, bona fide miracles were never the means by which God saves people. They're the means by which God attests to those whom he sent. The identity of Jesus, uh, later those who were his true apostles. But miracles, signs, and wonders do not and never have possessed the capacity to save. Miracles, Miracles can't wake the dead. They merely attest to those whom God has sent. But only God speaking, only the Word of God can raise the dead. To the dead son of the widow in nine, Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, arise. To Lazarus, who lay buried in the ground for four days until he stinketh, Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Jesus never said to the daughter of Jairus, the deceased daughter of Jairus, he he never said to her, young lady, look as I pull this rabbit out of a hat. No. Jesus said to her, child, arise. And Scripture says that her spirit returned And she got up immediately. Folks, the bad news for Israel, the really bad news for Israel, is even with all of the compelling evidence that God provided attesting to his son, Israel still did not believe in Jesus Christ. We just saw a few verses ago there were 120 in the room together, uh, who believed together on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Very, very small number. There were probably a few more up in Galilee still that weren't with them. We know that he appeared to 500 at one time. There were probably a few more than the 120, uh, maybe the woman at the well in Samaria. But all in all, three years of ministry of miracles, a very, very small number trusted in the word of God and in Christ Jesus. Folks, verse four, verse 22 is a strong, a severe indictment, a major indictment against a depraved humanity ensuring that nothing that man will ever see will ever cause the spiritually dead to be alive. Israel didn't come to faith in Jesus, broadly. Rather, 
while repeatedly refusing to believe. What did these spiritually dead people do with him? More bad news. Look at verse 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. They crucified God's Son. It's bad news. God certainly planned it. But Peter says, you guys are the ones who are guilty of doing it. Later, in verse 36, Peter, Peter will declare, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Israel is ethically or morally culpable for crucifying Christ and for using the hand of the godless Gentiles as an instrument of of execution. There's guilt to go around. Of course, the Jews and, and the Romans, they merely partake of the same human nature that we do, the same fallen nature as do we. Uh, so don't think that modern Americans wouldn't have joined in. If Jesus today were to make a guest appearance on virtually any morning talk show or news program and began to reveal the idolatry and the immorality that is rampant in America today in the same way that he did in Israel, there would, there would be a loud outcry against him. There would be cries to crucify him. If Jesus strolled into the nightclubs and pleaded with people, you know, stop the excessive drinking, stop sleeping with people who are not your spouse. Judgment is coming. What do you truly believe would happen to Jesus? How do you think that would go down? Think it would be received well amongst our culture? Would it be received well in any country on the planet? No. No. And we too are just as morally culpable for our sins as was ancient Israel. Jesus being crucified according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, it was for our sins as well. We, we've all sinned. We're, we're all guilty in the wages of our sin, or that which we earn through our sin is death. Again, this, this is the bad news. There's some good news coming. But before we segue over to the good news, do people still segue today, or is that just dated? Before we segue over to the good news, I, I'm, I'm compelled to provide an explanation uh, to people uh, who stumble over God's predetermined plan to save mankind through 
the crucifixion. So, some really struggle with this. But we, we do know it was God's will or his predetermined plan from before the time of creation to redeem a fallen creation. In fact, bend your mind around this. God's whole purpose for creation was never for it to perpetually exist in a pure and sinless state. If it were, God would have never permitted Satan to tempt Eve in the garden. It was never in the plan. There was a question this week, by the way, if you listen to Al Mohler, good radio program. Um, he does question Q&A on Friday, and the question came in, what would the population of the earth be had there not been a fall and no one would have died, how would the planet have possibly uh, been able to sustain everyone if there had not been a fall? I won't give you Moeller's answer, but I'll give you the right answer. He, he does a good job with it. It's a hard question. Here's the answer. That was never within the plan of God. The scenario does not exist. It was never going to happen. Rather, it was woven into God's design for creation to direct praise and glory to His Son through sending Him to be the Savior of the world that had fallen and do it through the redeeming of the souls of us. The fall was part of God's predetermined plan from the very beginning. Had all men never sinned, we would never attain the capacity to worship Christ throughout eternity in the way that we will, for saving us from God's just punishment in hell. We wouldn't know redemption from our sin had there not be a fall. And so ultimately, the underlying reason for creation, the whole purpose of creation, it was a predetermined plan where Christ would crush the serpent's head at Calvary, being lifted upon a cross to die for the sins of man, an innocent man, Christ, dying for our sins and through that for us to glorify Christ throughout all eternity. There had to be a fall. It was planned before time and written in the script before even day one of creation. And for Israel to crucify him, it was, it was part of God's predetermined plan. Does that in any way suggest that man created in the image of God and being a moral agent knowing right from wrong, uh, does that in any way suggest that we're not responsible for our sins? No, we, we surely are. And we will surely be held responsible for our sins. God's perfection, God's divine and moral perfection, does not insist that He must prevent all sin. 
we wouldn't be in the state that we're in if that were so. Nor prevent us sinful men from pursuing our own sinful nature and our lusts in our natural course of action. Rather, God being holy and just, he's merely bound by his divine nature to dispense justice and punish that which is evil. That's us. God's not obligated to intervene and stop all injustice. God is, rather, being holy and righteous, compelled to dispense justice. And therefore, all sin must be punished. God's predetermined plan, it does not make him the author of sin by no means. Uh, Rather, it makes Jesus at Calvary the remediator of our sins for whosoever will come to believe. Uh, Meanwhile, guilt will only magnify God's justice and will be displayed when he condemns those to hell, all who are unwilling to repent and believe. That's justice. But God himself, being holy and pure, He always remains good. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. There's nothing bad in Him. The bad is within us. The question is, then, you want answered today is, who are going to be the whosoever wills? Who who are these whosoever will types, right? The ones who will eventually believe. And, And who will God choose? Well, we're going to leave that topic to another week. That, uh, that will be election in verse 39b. That's not for today, but come back and we'll cover that. But there is one more thing we must clarify before moving on, and that is that this predetermined plan, God's predetermined plan, uh, was not based on foreknowledge. God didn't merely foresee that people would sin, and and then therefore scramble for a backup plan. What am I going to do about this? No, it was a predetermined plan. And, And John Calvin makes this observation of these two words, predetermined and foreknowledge. He says, quote, Now we must distinguish these two, and so much more, diligently, because many are deceived in this point. For passing over the counsel of God, wherewith He does guide and govern the whole world, they trip or they stumble at His bare knowledge, bare foreknowledge. Thereby comes, writes Calvin, that common distinction that although God does foresee all things, Yet he does not lay necessity upon his creatures, meaning God isn't sovereign. It is, assume, it is proposed. Calvin writes, And indeed, it is true that God does know this thing or that thing beforehand, uh, and for this reason, because it shall come to pass. But as we see that Peter does teach that God does not only foresee that which befell Christ, But it was decreed by God. 
And hence must be gathered a general doctrine, because God makes no greater display of His providence in governing the whole world than in ordaining and appointing the death of Christ. Therefore, it belongeth to God not only to know before things to come, but of His own will to determine what He will have done. A Greek scholar named Eckhard Schnabel adds a little more insight, saying, Jesus' death was part of God's plan, uh, which had been determined in advance according to the omniscience, the omniscient wisdom of God's foreknowledge. In the Greek text, this statement comes before the reference to those who are guilty of Jesus' death. What appeared to be a free, concerted action by the Jews and Gentiles was in fact done because God foreknew it, decided it, and planned it. In layman's terms, God's plan was not in reaction to man's actions through foreknowledge, but rather, just as the text says, God's sovereign plan was predetermined. It's before all things happened. It's a predetermined plan. A similar discussion arises in Romans 8, verse 29. I know many of you are thinking about that right now. Uh, there we read, those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He would be the firstborn of many brethren, and those, uh, these whom He predestined, He also called. And people claim, well, God just kind of foreknew propose that God only predestines some because he foresees them trusting in Christ. Uh, it's kind of a futile effort to, to preserve an idea of free will. And it's futile because if such persons would only continue reading Romans 8 into the next chapter, which is Romans 9, they would discover God wrote in, in his own Greek commentary on the Bible concerning whom he chooses. And God's choice does not depend on the man who wills or the man who ru runs, but upon God who has mercy. And he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. That, that's the commentary on Romans 8. But for one last illustration, uh, a professor of systematic theology at Dallas Seminary, his name is uh, Nathan Holstein, he used to address the foreknowledge question in, uh, in the following way. He says, and this is my summary of what he said, not a direct quote. He said, if God in eternity past merely looked into the future and elected someone based on foreknowledge. Looked ahead thousands of years, and God says, I see that hand. I see that hand. Bless you. I see that hand. If that were the way that he elected some because of foreknowledge, uh, then 7,000 years or so, oh, wait a second, he would also see the ones who don't raise their hand. Hey, I see you don't raise that hand. 
and then didn't elect, didn't elect them accordingly. Um, but then 7,000 years or so later, after God saw your hand, now in the year of 2022, is your free will able to do anything other than what God saw? And if God merely sees that you won't raise your hand, is your will then free to raise it? Clearly not. So in the case of mere foreknowledge and not the predestination by God, man's will is bound, restrained to do that which God saw. See, the argument against divine sovereignty based on divine foreknowledge does not undergird free will. It actually undermines it. More importantly, free will is not consistent with, with what we know about the depraved nature of man. None seeks after God, not even one, as revealed in Romans, Ephesians, virtually everywhere else in Scripture. This is the reason it's an issue. And you might be asking, why is this so important and why is it so, where is it practical? It's very practical in worship. Very practical in Christian worship. Because think of it this way Does God choose, elect, and predestine some? Well, he passes over on others. Uh, that, would, that would be what Scripture tells us quite clearly in many different locations. So when you are singing praises to God, and you're singing the hymns, think about it this way. Are you worshiping a God who saved you? Did he distinctly save you? Did he choose you and save you and take you out of your deadness and give you life? Or are you worshiping a God who died on the cross for sins making it possible for you to save yourself. Is there merely the potential for you to be saved at the cross, and yet you need to do something to save yourself? Or did God call you out of the dead and raise you to life? Folks, that is a big difference in how you worship. Saying, I was dead, but he made me alive? It affects worship a lot. So, there's, there's something to consider. God's, God's predetermined plan for Calvary it was not based on what he saw in you, but solely on the eternal glory that is going to be magnified in his Son for saving you. A plan from before the foundation of the world was laid and thereby the cross at Calvary becomes good news for Israel. You may have killed him. That's the bad news. Verse 23, but God raised him again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. And through the cross, there now appears for humanity a solution for our condition. 
the depraved humanity. The wages of sin is surely death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, whom God raised from the dead. And through Jesus being raised, he put an end to the agony of death. In other words, death, death is rendered kaput. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is described in verse 23. It's an entity, folks. Listen to this. Peter says, listen. Death is described in verse 23 as an entity that holds captive. Its experience is agony. Jesus said, I have come to set the captives free. There's no notion of annihilation here or, or people after they die just ceasing to exist. That's incompatible with Scripture. You're going to exist for eternity somewhere. And the Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is often called, uh, to this which holds captive, it's often called the cords of death or, or the cords of Sheol, you read about in the Psalms. And the cords indicate a restraint that is impossible for us to break. Folks, death holds captive. And death for the unbeliever is a perpetual agony. I have no fear of dying. I'm not thrilled about pondering how I might die. But I have no fear of death. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Nothing to be afraid of. Christ is is not merely more powerful than death. It's not that death is quite powerful and Christ is a little more powerful. Rather, death has no power over him. It's not only impossible, the scenario proves inconceivable that death could constrain or restrain Jesus. The scenario doesn't exist. By the power of Christ at Calvary, I have been declared not guilty for my sins because He bore them on the cross. Only you can answer for yourself if you believe in Jesus Christ who saves. And in Christ, death has no power over me. you want to know a thought that terrifies me? Being held captive in a perpetual state of agony and restrained 
in a dark place for all eternity apart from God by the cords of Sheol. Folks, the wages of sin is death. That is terrifying. That thought is terrifying. And today, the good news is, you do not have to go there. Christ, by being raised, became the first of all who through faith will be raised from the dead, imperishable. It's our scripture reading earlier. As I stated a couple weeks ago, uh, this is the faith which we proclaim through water baptism. When we are baptized, immersed into the water, we believe that Christ died, that we died to our old self with Him, but by power, by God's power, we are raised up again to new life coming out of the water. We're stating that even though I die, that's not where I remain. You can lay me under the ground. They did that to Jesus, but I ain't staying in the ground. But I'm already through faith raised to eternal life. It is a new life that we have when trusting in Christ. Folks, this is exactly what King David is saying in Psalm chapter 16. That's who David, that's who Peter quotes here. Look with me at verse 25 in Acts chapter 2. Peter declares, I've got some good news concerning this Jesus fella. I've got some really good news about this guy whom you crucified. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. David is saying, already right now, I'm living in this hope. What's the next line? Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David confesses to God. This is a thousand years before Christ is born. He says, you have made known to me the ways of life. And essentially, that life, the, the life, the joy that I have, exists in your Holy One, the one whom you raise from the dead. And by stating to the Lord in verse 28, uh, you have made known to me the ways of life. You have made known to me. Just as we heard earlier, Peter was saying, King David describes himself as a passive participant in God's predetermined plan of salvation. You have made it known to me. And who ultimately is the object of King David's faith? Think of this now, a thousand years before Christ, who is the object of David's faith? It's the Holy One. It's Jesus Christ, who, whose body did not decay because Peter says God raised him up again 
You know, David doesn't have as, as much information as we do about Jesus. He, in fact, David doesn't probably even know his name. Later, later, Isaiah will come in and say he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. But David, nonetheless, prophesying under the Spirit of God, King David had faith in the exact same person that you and I do. And David declares, because of him, because of your Holy One, I know that my soul will not be abandoned to Hades. He said, I don't fear the cords of Sheol, because through Christ I am no longer in bondage to sin. Because Christ dies, I truly live, because death has no grip on me. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is worship influenced by what you know about God? Very much so. Knowledge of God is called theology. Jesus told the woman at the well, you people worship what you do not know. Christians worship what we know. And because of Scripture, we like David, just like King David, we have been made, know, made to know the ways of life. They've been made known to us. We know why we're here. And we know where we are going after our body dies physically. We're going to live. That's where we're going. And if you haven't yet made that distinction between the God that you don't know and the God whom you know, we're going to close with a word of prayer that God will make himself known to you today. <laughs>